Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you and to study your word. We ask that you guide and lead us as we seek what you would have us to learn from this. In your son's name, amen. Thank you. All right, Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came in, unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat there. And a great multitude came to him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered. When they saw the dumb speak, the maimed behold, behold, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say, said unto him, When should we be, have so much bread in the wilderness so as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus asked them, How many loaves have we? And they said, Seven and a few little fish. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves of fish and gave thanks and broke it and gave to the disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full, and they did eat were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took a ship and came to the coast of Magdala. So we look here, and we're going to just cover this real quick because it's a, pretty much a repeat of what just happened a few days before when he fed 5,000 people. So we're just going to do this real quick. He goes, Jesus left. And remember we talked about the Syrophoenician woman with her great faith that she said, you know, Lord, he, you know, I'm not one of, the, one of the people, but even the, even the little dogs get the crumbs, and he healed, healed his, her daughter. And then it says Jesus went, then went away unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down. It says a great multitude came to him. And the great multitude is going to be defined as 4,000 men plus women and children at the end of this chapter, which is a pretty good crowd of people coming out into the wilderness. Uh, that would be like several thousand people showing up at our church in the middle of nowhere because uh, that's what the disciples say you know we're going to get the food for this many people we're out of, we're out in the middle of nowhere and uh, they said they brought with them lame blind dumb maimed and many others and so we think about this have you ever tried to walk with crutches and a cast or something or with a sore ankle it's not easy and they're bringing the lame out they're bringing out the blind the dumb, those who can't speak, maimed, people who are missing limbs and everything, out to the middle of nowhere. This is a big task. Even if they carried them, the people who carried them are going to get tired. If they're walking out there, they're going to get tired. So we, I don't know if you've ever kind of noticed this. They're out in the middle of nowhere, and they bring this big crowd of handicapped people you know, that are going to have troubles. And it says that Jesus healed them. This is what it keeps saying. A multitude shows up, Jesus heals them. And that causes more multitude to show up because they're always looking for, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And they're not really following him. They're looking after the miracles. And unfortunately, many times we as Christians do the same thing. God, what have you, what have you done lately for me? I know you gave me this and you gave me that, but it uh, seems like a long time and you haven't done anything for me. And we're not seeking the giver. We're looking after the gifts. And it's very important that we seek after the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. And because 
in Jesus' day, most of them followed him because of the gifts, not to seek after the giver. And so we want to be able to see this, that God is saying, seek after me. Not after what I can do for you, but after me. And most of the prosperity gospel, much of the Pentecostal churches are teaching this whole idea of you know, seek after the gifts, come and get the gifts, come and get the gifts, you know. Uh, not really seeking after God, just what can you experience from him? What kind of gifts can you get from him? What, you know, what can I get? God, give me, give me, give me. <laughs> and a lot of people have that attitude. God, I, I just want. Don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to do anything, but just, you know, God, give me lots of blessings. And this is what the people were seeking. They were seeking after what can you give me? And, and yet he kept healing he kept healing people. It says, in so much that the multitude wondered or marveled. You know, everybody's been healed. All the people we bring them, it doesn't matter what's wrong with them, he heals them. He heals the sick, he heals the, the, the dying, he hurt, you know, heals the, the ones with devils in them. He, he can heal anybody. And when you think of maimed, he's healing them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus picks it back up and puts it back to his head and heals him. And nobody ever stops and goes, wow, this guy's really powerful. He can, he can take a severed, severed piece off the body and put it right back, and that didn't phase the crowd that was coming to arrest him. Yeah. I think that would make me stop and think twice. Yeah. Uh, he just did something totally miraculous. He didn't sew the ear back on and leave stitches and all that. He just put it back on. Maimed. How many people were maimed in that? day that didn't have strength in their limbs, maybe having their limbs cut off or damaged, and he healed them. The power of God is miraculous and should draw people to him. And here it says they glorified God. They glorified the God of Israel. They, they saw the power and they honored it. And then we look at Jesus and says, I have compassion on these people because they have been here for three days without eating. It took Jesus a little while to heal all those people, obviously. He didn't do it in, in just instantaneous. He could have. But obviously, he took time to do this. And it's creating time. And he says, I, you know, tells the disciples, I'm not going to send them away fasting. Uh, we're going to feed them. Now, this particular story has never ceased to marvel, amaze me. Because the disciples go, where are we going to find so much bread in the wilderness to feed these people? It's only been a week or two at the max since he fed 5,000 people in the middle of nowhere. And the disciples have totally forgotten, apparently. Uh, he doesn't need much to feed, to feed a lot of people. They seem to have totally forgotten. They're, they're like, uh, where are we going to find that much food? But again, we do the same thing so often with God. God, I'm going to honor you with my tithe, and he, gives, and, he pay, and he gives us the money back to pay our bill. And then a couple weeks later, a month later, we're going, God, I just can't afford to give you my tithe because my, I got these bills to pay. And God's going, what's wrong with my power? Has it, have I lost power in a month? You know, have I really gotten that ineffective in a month? This, you could picture Jesus saying this. Have I forgotten how to, how to feed a multitude in, in just a couple of weeks or a month? You know, he could have chided them with them that, you know, have I, have you guys so quickly forgotten? Have you forgotten that I have the power to feed a crowd with very little? But he was very kind 
and I always love how kind Jesus is with the disciples. You know, if it had been me, I'm going, what's wrong with you dummies? You forgot? <laughs> you forgot already? But Jesus, Jesus just asked a simple question. How many loaves do we have? And I think in this case, they might have been prepared for him a little bit because their answer came back really quick. Seven loaves and a few fish. It's almost like they had gone around the people to see how much food was out there. Or maybe that's all that they had in their own possession. I don't know. But, you know, they, they came back really quick. You know, oh, we have seven loaves. And you can almost picture them saying this and almost thinking, well, we had less than this the last time he fed, fed a multitude. Because remember the first time when he fed 5,000, five loaves and two fish. And here they have seven loaves and a few fish. Five loaves, two fish? Uh, in the first one. And he feeds 5,000. I can almost picture them saying, oh, we've got seven loaves and a few. Oh, you know, we have more, we have more to start with than we had before. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he can't do it with <laughs> seven fish and a few fish. We, we, need, we need to lose some of these so it would be a miracle again. No. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't make fun of that. But, you know, this is, but I can almost picture them saying at this point, you know, we've got seven, seven loaves and a few fish. Uh, oh, yeah, he could do this. <laughs> and going back to their memory. This is why it's important for us to keep rehearsing what God has done in our lives so that we don't forget. It is so easy for us to forget. We as humans are so short-memoried usually, we, and we tend to remember the things we shouldn't remember and forget the things that we should be remembering. God says to remember what he's done for us and all that he can do. What do we end up remembering? How bad people are and how they've hurt us and, and how many problems I have in my life, not all the blessings that God gives me. And we tend to do this so often. Remember the hurts and the bad and forget the good. The disciples had forgotten the good. And it's only been a short time. Now, as odd as happened, they, had, they toiled across the, river, the, the, the lake in the storm and, and were fighting all night long to get there. They've seen him, they've seen him do healings. They've seen him do mir miracles. They, they're now back here. They've seen the Syrophoenician woman. Now they're back here in the middle of the wilderness. And God is doing miraculous things, and then they forget that he can still feed the multitude with very little. And he feeds, he says, sit, you know, make them sit down. He broke the fish, he gave it to them. And they took up seven baskets of leftovers. Now, it's also struck me that he's got more fish to start with, more loaves to start with, and they take up less fragments. Why? Because he's already shown them what he can do. If they can't remember the great miracle, one full basket of leftovers for each one of them, there's no need of having the miracle repeated. And you know, God does that with us often. The first time he steps into our life, it's a great miracle. And he does great, big, huge things and makes a big production out of it for us so that we'll remember it. And we forget. <laughs> and when he comes back in, it's usually not as miraculous. It's not as big. He doesn't sound as many trumpets in our life. As we mature, we're supposed to recognize that it's a miracle of God. And we don't need the great big miracles. And I've seen this in my life. You know, when I was younger, I needed, you know, he showed us great big miracles. Here's your miracle. Here's this miracle. Here's this big thing in your life. Now I think he expects me to be looking for them and say, here, here it is. It's just a little one. But it's no less a miracle. No less a miracle, even though it's small. But when we've said this before, Henry Blackaby, an experience that God said, if you want to 
find out what God's doing, look around and find out what he's doing. And join him. Look for him. If you're looking for God, you will see him. You will find him because he's not hiding. Usually he's out in the open. We're just looking the wrong way. Because we're looking at the world. We're saying, God, I think you should do it this way, the way the world would do it. And God says, no, I'm over here doing it, doing it my way. Come and join me. Come and join me in what I'm doing. Don't expect me to join you. Now, when we're young in Christ, he'll come over and he'll say, okay, I want you to point over here. I'm over here. He'll take us by the hand and kind of drag us over to where he's at. Just as we did with our children. It's safer over here. Get away from the street. I'm grabbing your hand and dragging you to where it's safe, where things are going. As our kids get a little older, we let them have a little more freedom to the point where we let them as teenagers usually have a lot of freedom while we can still pick up the pieces when they mess up their life. And God does that with us. He's saying, I'm over here. You can come join me or you can do things that are going to hurt you over there. And we should be joining him. We should be old enough to be able to look around and say, I think I should be over there with God. I should be doing what he's wanting me to do, not over here playing with sin. And I'm not saying the disciples were playing with sin in this carriage, but they really were. They had a sin of disbelief. God, we know, Jesus, we know you fed the 5,000 with nothing, but uh, this crowd, we just don't know about them. <laughs> How many times did the Jews do it in the wandering of the wilderness? God, you gave us water, but uh, we're kind of out of water right now. Can you give us more water? God, we're a little sick and tired of this wonderful manna that's kept us on our feet forever. You know, we're, it, it just tastes the same every day. You know, we, we miss the onions and leeks and melons of, of Egypt. And I don't know how many of those they actually had because they were slaves, but we're, we're missing all the goodies from Egypt. And God says, all right, I'll give you something else. And God was so wonderful to them. He kept giving them and giving them in spite of all their griping and complaining. And yet God does that for us today. God, uh, I just don't see you anywhere around me today. Uh, I need this. And how gracious is he to give us so much of what we ask for? In spite of the fact that we don't deserve it because we're not even over there serving him at the time. And he tells the people that he's going to feed them. And he gather up seven baskets and he says there were 4,000 men besides women and children. So again, we probably are seeing a situation where there's probably about 10,000 people by the time you count women and children. Because the women are there, they're going to have their kids and they probably have two or two or three kids that they're dragging along, and at least half the men might have been married. So we're looking somewhere around six, eight, nine, ten thousand people being fed on seven loaves and a couple of fish. So what can God do for us? Anything. He can create the world out of nothing. There is nothing that our God can't do if we just trust him. We just need to learn to trust him. And this is what I love about people like George Mueller, who's, you know, we've shared with you. The whole reason he started praying was because he wanted to stay in school. He became a Christian. His father cut him off on, his, on the payment for his school, and he goes, God, I need money for school. And the next thing you know, somebody's knocking at his door, telling him he, they want to offer him a job, tutoring four different people at the same time and paying him for as if he was tutoring each one of them individually. <laughs> Just happened to be enough to pay for school. Okay, uh, and it, it, over the years he just learned to be able to pray more and more and trust God. This is the importance of remembering what God has done in our life to build our faith, to build our confidence. 
and not keep repeating the same thing over and over again. So often we keep doing the same thing and never learn our lesson. Committing the same sin, never learning to repent and, and leave it behind. Having to go through the same positive lessons over and over again. And I've shared you with the greatest thing I'm looking forward to in heaven is not forgetting everything that I study. And, and because I've studied so much, I've forgotten more than a lot of people have ever known, but still it bothers me when I go to grab hold of something and it's just not there anymore. And I have to go back and restudy it all over again. I'm looking forward to the day in heaven when I don't forget anything that he's shown me. And here he is, he's saying, have you remembered? <laughs> you know, he could be very easily telling the disciples, have you remembered? Now, doesn't this seem a little familiar? It was just a couple weeks ago. And yet, he doesn't rub it, in their, rub it in their face. And he still, to this day, doesn't do this. And we've shared with you, you know, we look through the scriptures, and how often does God repeat himself in the scriptures? Over and over and over again, he says the same thing. Don't, don't wander away from me. If you wander away from me, I'm going to judge you. And if I'm going to bless you if you keep doing it. And he keeps repeating the same message over and over again. You know, just about take your pick, any book. <laughs> any book where there's correction, and you can, you can see that he said the same thing again and again. And yet, that's the patience of God. How easy do we lose our patience as humans? Now, how many times do I have to tell you this? <laughs> Paul, in the letter to the Philippians we talked about just a few, you know, about a month ago, I guess now, says, I'm not burdened by having to tell you this again. He's probably a little sad, but, you know, he's not burdened because he knows how hard-headed people are. Probably knows how hard-headed he was to learn it. And that's one of the reasons that I understand. I'm going to keep repeating it because I know that I've taken times when it's taken me a long time to learn something, and I look at how God teaches. He just keeps repeating, keeps repeating. And nowhere in here do I read, you dumb knuckleheads, why can't you remember this? I've told you a hundred times. He just keeps repeating it and just lovingly says, I'm going to present it again. How many times do you have to hear it before you're going to remember? I'll just keep doing it until you finally remember. And that's the good news of what God does for us. Just keeps presenting it over and over again. And eventually, we remember, and hopefully as we mature, we start remembering quicker because we start recognizing that God is speaking. And you know, we know, we've talked about this, uh, when you've, again, I talked about this in the old days, before you had caller ID on your phone and you picked up the phone and, and you said hi, and the other person said hi, and then you go, oh, hi, so-and-so. They didn't tell you who they were, but you recognized their voice because you talked with them often enough. Uh, it's always amazed me how mothers can sit in a sanctuary and hear the crying of a baby back in the nursery and knows who, know that it's their baby and sometimes even know what's wrong with the child, whether they have to get up or not you know, uh, to go take care of the baby because they just know their child so well. We need to get to know God that well. God, when you speak, I'm going to know it's your voice. I'm going to pay attention because I know it's your voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. He goes, a, a false shepherd they will not follow. And I've watched some video of this, you know, pictures of shepherds in the Middle East. They put all their sheep together in a pen overnight. And then they just call their sheep and the sheep follow them where they go. You know, 
and none of the other sheep will follow him, and another shepherd will come up, call his sheep, and his sheep will follow, follow them. They know the voice of their master. How many of us as Christians don't know the voice of our master? Why? Obviously, we're not spending enough time with him in the word, in prayer, learning his voice. And it's something we need to be doing. We need to know his voice. When he says something, we go, yes, that is, that's, that's the Savior's voice. As opposed to hearing the lies of Satan and the, and the demons being projected to us. Uh, that's not his voice. <laughs> it's against the scripture. It's against what he would say anyway. It's not his voice. And we need to get to that place where we go, God, I know it's your voice because it matches scripture and I've heard it a hundred times. And I'm going to keep following you. And when Satan projects things into our brains, we go, that's not your voice, God. It doesn't match the word. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. I'm not going to follow it. All right, chapter 16. Verse 1. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempted, tempting him, desired him that he should show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you will say it is fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after sign, a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto you but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, we've talked about this before. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. They, they believe in the Bible. They follow God, God's rules and laws. The Sadducees do not believe in the spiritual, do not believe in the afterlife, do not believe in a resurrection. They are very pragmatic, down-to-earth people. They would, be, they would be the ones that would say, if there's a God, they, we don't care about him. He doesn't care about us. And they will do whatever is good for them in the now because they really don't believe there is a future. They don't believe in heaven and hell. They don't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees believe in the afterlife. They believe in God's word. They will follow God's word as opposed to man's rules. The Sadducees will follow man's rules as long as it's good, does good for them. And so they meet him and they go, show us a sign. Prove to us that you're who you say you are. You know, you say you're the son of God. You say you're the Messiah. Prove it. All right. I don't know. He has, he's been doing a pretty good job uh, proving it up till now. He's healing, healing everybody that comes along. He's feeding everybody. He's casting out demons. He's not falling for any of their tricks. Uh, raised people from the dead. To me, that would be pretty good signs. <laughs> but they're going... Um, some of them probably were. If not, they'd heard about it. But, you know, the, the whole idea is they're, they're in the same way that many times we are. What have you done for us lately? Okay. We've heard about a lot of these things. We've even seen some of them, but, but let's prove it on demand. You, know, you staged these really well somehow, but now we're going to tell you do it now. Right this moment, do it. And Jesus knew what they were doing. They just wanted to see a trick. And his answer was kind of simple. He goes, you can look at the weather. You can guess the weather. If it's red, red sky at night, you're, you say it's going to be good to clear tomorrow. If it's a red sky in the morning, you say it's going to storm. And the sailors use the same thing. Red, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. You know, that's my dad used to quote that all the time. Then I find out it's in the scriptures. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, see it right here in the scriptures, you know, and... Uh, but it is true. If you see clouds at night, 
you know the storms usually blow out over the night and, and get blown away and you end up with a good day the next day. If it's cloudy when it's morning, usually it means the storms are due that during the daytime. And he's saying, you can look at the skies and you can tell pretty much what's going on in the skies and you can't, you leaders of Israel can't discern God's work. You can't see what God is doing and understand it. He goes, a wicked and adulterous generation seek a sign. But this is really what he's saying. He goes, you're the leaders. You're the leaders and you can't discern God in, in movement. Discernment is the greatest gift that God gives his people. The gift of being able to know that something is of God or not of God. And you know, have you ever had that feeling when somebody's talking to you and you, you just know that they're not speaking the right thing? You may, you may not even be able to know why. You just know it's not right. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying, this is not of me. This is not of me. Other occasions might be somebody saying something and you'd never heard it before, but it just sounds completely right. Everything in you says this is true. And you go, never heard it this way, never thought about it this way, but you just know it's true because there's no place where it does contradict Scripture. And you go, you just know it's true. I've done this many times, listening on the radio to a pastor or listening, you know, the handful of times I do TV listening, which I don't do very often. Now all of a sudden they'll, they'll say something, I'm going, where is this person coming from? This is not biblical. Uh, this person is not teaching the Spirit of God. And I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me over the years and say, would you listen to this tape or this CD or, or watch this guy on TV and tell me what you think about them? Well, I used to go ahead and accept the stuff and, and look it up and I'm going, but now my question is why? Why do you want me to listen? Well, I'm just not sure about them. I think that might be the Holy Spirit telling you not to listen to them. <laughs> because every time I've done that, I've listened to about four or five minutes of what, the, what they've given me to listen to and turned it off saying this person absolutely doesn't know what they're talking about and isn't spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the way it is. If somebody's given me who I, who I trust to be a Christian and they're giving me saying, I've got some concerns about these people, I've just learned to say, then go with what God is telling you and don't listen to them. Uh, don't listen to them because it's obvious that the Spirit is speaking to you and telling you that there's something wrong. And very, I think maybe one time out of all the times I've ever taught, taken a tape, have I ever found out that the person, at least on that particular tape, was okay. Usually it's just seconds into and minutes into it, I'm going, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's not spiritual. Really? Not usually. The the problem is that most young Christians don't know enough about the Bible to be able to understand exactly what's wrong with it. All right, they just know that the Holy Spirit is telling them something's wrong. They also don't understand the Holy Spirit because they're still trying to learn the Holy Spirit. But what I have found when I could say because of how much I've studied and everything I get in, I'm going, you know, I could listen to the whole thing and go, it was wrong here, 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 and here. But I'm just going to listen to it. And when I find that he's off, I'm going to don't listen to this guy. He's not worth listening to. 
Now, you are not going to be in 100% agreement with anybody that you ever listen to, period. It, you're just not going to happen. If there is, you're not learning anything. Uh, but is what's, gone, what's said significantly wrong enough to make, okay, I've got to break fellowship with this person, or is it just a minor, minor issue? All right? And so some of these people that I've listened to, when I find out real that quick, there's, there, there's, significant, there's significance. If I'm listening to them, and you know, even, even when the guys that I listen to on the radio that I like a lot, every once in a while they'll say something and I'm going, where the world did you get that from? It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's not off-off, it's just their application or whatever, just, it doesn't, you know, it's not biblical. Well, Jesus said, if they're not against, uh, against us, they're for us. Um, but it is important. You know, am I going to go out and I'm going to blast everybody who's teaching false doctrine? No, because I have faith that people that have God inside them, have the Holy Spirit inside them, will listen to the Holy Spirit and not listen to these people. Now, if somebody comes to me directly and says, you know, I've been listening to so-and-so and they said such-and-such, one-on-one, -on -one, I will talk to them about their concerns, but I'm not going to come out in a, in a study and say, you know, you shouldn't be listening to this guy or that guy or this guy because that's not my job. Unless I see a lot of my people being hurt by listening, you know, being sucked into false, you know, truly false doctrine. No, you don't want to do that. Now, it's not a wise thing to do. Uh, the pastor of a church is going to stand and fall before God. Now, there are certain denominations or religions that make some impacts into groups, and they need, their false teachings need to be addressed. Okay? People like the, the Mormons, who are basically polytheists. They believe that everybody, the ultimate goal of their people is to be the god of their own planet and populate their own planet and be the god of their planet. They're polytheists. Oh, they believe in a great God, a lot of gods, you, you, but the God that they believe in is not the God. Because somewhere out there is, there is a God who started everything, but every planet is run by some man, uh, some person who did good in their, in their previous planet and previous life and were made a God of this, of this life. <laughs> the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses denied the deity of Jesus. That's a significant issue to deal with because if you don't have Jesus you're not Christian even though they claim to be a Christian group you know we see these things over and over again uh, we've got groups that you know are so much into legalism and law that you know if they started coming into the church I would have to say no you guys aren't coming in to try to steal our people seven-day Adventists are a good one for that they like to go into churches and try to drag people in saying they'll come into the church on Sunday and say well you're worshiping on the wrong day you've got to come to our church because you're 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 in a church that's taking you straight to hell because you're not you know and they'll do this kind of stuff yeah 
Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are, are 144,000 will go to heaven and the rest will be on the new heaven and earth, but not in heaven. So, uh, then you get into the other religions that are all telling you do more good than bad and, and you'll be okay, which is against the gospel message. Now, to speak the truth about these people is one thing, to attack them and destroy them, because there are good people in, in all those cults. There are good people in each of those religions. Okay? There are people that don't know what they believe in those religions, just as in some Christian churches and many Christian churches, there are people that don't understand Christianity. Because the majority of the people that are in Christian churches believe that you do more good than bad and you're going to be okay. They don't believe in Jesus as the, as, as the only way to heaven. They don't believe the word of God is the absolute truth. And so we want to be careful. We, just, we really just want to teach the truth. This is what God says. If you know the truth, the lies will stand out like a sore thumb. And the greatest example of this is when they train treasury officers to identify uh, counterfeits. The way they train them is they do nothing but handle pure, fresh money, perfect money all the time. And then as their final test, they will slip, try to slip a false bill through, through them. And all of a sudden, they hit that false bill. They don't know what's wrong with it immediately. But all of a sudden, the alarm bells go off in their heads, and they look at it a little closer. As Christians, if we learn the truth, when a lie comes into our presence, the Holy Spirit will discern it and say, you know, warning, warning, pay attention. Okay, I. The bankers should do the same thing. It's uh, all I know is that I know that the treasury. That's what they do. And it wouldn't surprise me. You. Right, and you just you you just understand the difference. And this is the way it is with Christ. If we study the truth, the Word of God often enough, long enough, all of a sudden when a lie comes our way, it's that warning that sounds in your head. And I hope every one of you have been there and heard that warning in the back of your head sometime. Like, I don't know what's wrong, but I now need to pay attention. There was one time, and I remember it so well because I was just listening to the radio in the background, and it was a speaker that I generally liked, and all of a sudden, and I wasn't really paying attention, but all of a sudden the warnings went off in my head and I go, and I have to listen to this guy. And sure enough, he was talking about some really wacky things. And I'm going, I guess I'm not going to listen to this guy anymore. Yeah. But if we know the truth, then the lie will be standing out. It's just like if you watched an event and you knew the truth of about, about an event and you heard somebody's lie about the event, you know, you would know that what they were saying is not true because you saw the event. You know, I actually watched it. I don't know what you were doing, but I was there and this happened and I don't know what you saw. If you know the truth, a lie has no effect on you whatsoever. I used to do this in the restaurant sometimes when I'd be watching what happened between two people. And then I'd hear the stories from both sides and neither one of them told the truth. And it's like, uh, would one of you at least like to tell me what really happened? Because I watched it. <laughs> okay. And when we follow God's word, we'll know the lie. We may not know exactly what's wrong with the lie. 
We'll just know that it's a lie. Discernment. Jesus is telling you guys are the leaders and you can't even discern my walk, my worry, my ways, what I'm doing. Pretty much what he said to Nicodemus in the, in, the, in the garden when Nicodemus came to him and said, and Jesus said, you must be born again. He goes, how do you do that? And he goes, you're a leader of Israel and you don't understand the, the, the worldly things I'm telling you. How can you understand the spiritual? He was gentle with Nicodemus because Nicodemus wanted to know. Here he tells them they're, they're uh, wicked poneros that's about as evil as you can get and adulterous. <laughs> Yeah. Not being nice to these guys at all because they're out there trying to trap him. And he says, you'll get the sign. All you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Three days and three nights in the belly of the well before he goes into in to preach to Nineveh. Just as Jesus said, I will be dead for three days and three nights and then I'll come back. You know, he says, that's all you're going to get, the sign of Jonah. Which I don't understand even at that. And... Uh, then it says, and he left them and departed. This particular phase of Jesus' life, we are in the last year of Jesus' life right now. And Jesus' life is kind of broken up. He has the year of his appearance when he shows up. Everybody's like, and then he has a year when everybody really likes him. And then somewhere between the liking and, disli and then dislike is about year, year and a half, and he spends time being opposed everywhere he goes. He started drawing a crowd in the Leaders didn't like it. And we see this even in our day. When somebody stands up, the established leaders do not like opposition. You see it in government. You see it in local politics. You see it even in, even in the crime world. So if somebody comes up to challenge the status quo, there'll be battles and wars until they either depress the one person or he wins, he or she wins, and reestablishes a new status quo. We're in the period of time when Jesus is being attacked. Every time he turns around, he's being attacked. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to make him look bad in front of people. And we're going to see this over and over again as he goes through this time with them. Verse 5. And when the disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have forgotten to take bread. Which... When Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O oh, you of little faith, why reason you among yourselves that you, because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves and five thousand, and how many baskets we took up, neither the seven loaves and the four thousand, and how many baskets you left? How is it then that you do not understand that I spoke not of the earth to you concerning bread, but that you should beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes? Then they understood that he, that he bade them to beware of, not to beware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is one of those comical things where Jesus is dealing with his disciples. You know, and it's comical, but yet, how many times do we do the same type of thing? You know, God, you've taught me this four or five times, and I still don't remember, and I'm still lost when you tell me. So he says, they departed, and, you know, and it says here they forgot the bread. They forgot their seven baskets of bread. Uh, and it says, Jesus said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you're not aware of it, and we've talked about this before, leaven is a picture of sin. All right? All through the scripture, leaven represents sin. A little sin destroys our life just as a little leaven will leaven an entire loaf of bread. 
they, one more uh, in Egypt for the Passover they were told to get rid of all the leaven in their house all the sin in their house and then they sacrificed the Passover lamb put the put the blood on it all through scripture he refers to the leaven being sin and we see this picture of get rid of the leaven and he's telling them beware of the leaven the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees Leaven literally is any rising agent. Usually, usually yeast, but it can be baking uh, powder. It can be any number of leavening agents. Well, because God was the one that used that in the various scriptures. He's he's the one that said. Of sin because of how it grows because of how it grows and takes over your life yeah you do anything with leaven if there's any food source at all for for your leavening agent it will expand it will consume everything in that in that flour and bread and stuff so it's God uses that as an example that it, just a little bit of sin in our life can totally take our life over and this is why we're told that our flesh needs to be crucified. Because if I give place for sin, it basically gives the devil a foot, footprint, a beachhead in my life to start with that sin. And if you think about the times that you've had troubles, it usually starts with that sin dragging you down and then expanding. Whatever sin it is that gets, gets you. And, and almost all of us have a sin in our life that if we're not very careful about it and keeping it under the blood, that we will be attracted to. Whether it is lying, stealing, pornography, laziness, gluttony, whatever it might be, if we don't let it get crucified and we just kind of build walls around it and say, okay, we're just going to build a big wall around it. We're going to put a prison there for it and we're not going to get rid of it it becomes a foothold for Satan to come out in our life and attack us. And we need to be so much and you know, the other thing we need to do is we need to be aware of what that sin is so that we're not going to let it get hold of us. Uh, we, you see with alcoholics, they give up their, they give up their alcohol. They're, they're going, I'm turned over a new leaf. I've repented. I'm not going to drink anymore. And they get rid of almost all their alcohol in their cabinets and keep one one bottle, one or two bottles tucked away in a closet someplace just in case. Well, if you make a provision for sin, that just in case will happen. You'll get the person who's addicted to pornography and they go, well, I'm going to keep one magazine around and I'm going to keep all the passwords to my pornographic sites just in case so I don't have to buy them all again. You're, you're setting yourself up to fail and you will fail if you do that. If you make provision for your sin that you're trying to give up, you will fail. The drug user saying, well, I'm going to keep one bag hidden away, you know, tucked away in a corner someplace just in case, is going to fail. The thief who says, I'm going to keep my lockpick set and my, and my radios or whatever else he uses to, to get away, is setting themselves up to fail. You're going to let God crucify your flesh. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. 
I am crucified. God does the crucifying. Romans 12 says that we are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which means we put ourselves on the altar and God will kill our flesh. It's God who's going to do it. We need to give it up. Okay, because like I said, I can sit here and build my, my wall around it. I can make provisions for myself. And you go, God, you can, you can kill this half of it, but not this half. God, I really want to give it up, but not quite all the way. God, you can kill 99% of it, but I'm going to keep 1% of it alive. And the leaven will destroy everything again. It'll come right back. Very important. God, I want you to take everything out of my life. I want to give it up. Now, the good news is he doesn't take everything all at once. <laughs> he slowly will take each activity out of our life, starting with probably the one that he knows is going to hurt us the most. And this is why I'd share with people, how many times have you been worried about some sin in somebody's life, maybe your kid's life or, your, or some family members, you're really worried about that sin in their life? You know, let's say it's uh, smoking. You're really worried about their smoking because so many people get cancer and die at a young age. And you're really pressing them hard to quit smoking. What you don't know is that they're using meth as well. And God's trying to get rid of the meth. You're worried about the cigarettes. And you're getting them focused on the cigarettes. And they're, and they're taking something that will probably kill them a whole lot faster than the cigarettes will. Or they're going out on the, and picking up people on the street each week and possibly going to die of AIDS. Because, but you're so worried about that smoking. We need to be very careful. We pray for somebody. When we see something, we can pray for them to get healing on it. But we can't play Holy Spirit in their life. That's God's job. We can tell them that they need to turn to God, they need to correct their life, that we're concerned about them, that we're praying for them. But if we start focusing on some sin, God may have something bigger in their life that he's working on. And you know, sometimes we do the same thing when God convicts us of something that's not a thou shalt not in the Bible. Let's use smoking as an example. People will point to all these verses. They'll go, don't pollute the, you know, don't pollute the, the temple of God. You're the temple of God. You shouldn't pollute your God. You shouldn't destroy the God's body. You know, and all these things, they'll give you all these verses that are great verses to support their principle that you shouldn't smoke. But it's still their principle <laughs> on how to apply those verses. We need to be very careful because we are not the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. Pray for them. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit in your life and, and say, I need to change this in my life. <laughs> yeah, get, get rid of the log in your own eye rather than the speck in somebody else's eye. And we have a hard enough time getting rid of the stuff in our own life, much less trying to pull the piece of sawdust out of, their, out of their eye. And we want to be careful about that. Does that mean that, they're, that what they're doing is all good? Not necessarily. But... Think about how God has moved things out of your life. You know, usually he starts with the really, quote unquote, big sins. Then he starts working into a whole array of other sins. I've been walking with God for 46 years. He has taken things out of my life that I wouldn't even begin to try to tell people what he's taken out of my life because I don't want them to get convicted because of what God said to me. All right? I want God to work in each person's life and take things away at his rate, at his, the way he wants to. Not going, well, I think this guy's a really good follower of God, so I'm going to do what they do. If it's bad for them, it's got to be bad for me. And God's going, no, I've got other things that I'm worried about. And we need to be careful. 
because each individual can be doing the same exact thing with one person sinning and one person not sinning. God says to pray for our leaders. And if he's touched it on your heart and you're not praying for your leaders, you'd be sinning. Whereas another person younger in Christ not praying for their leaders but not, God's never touched it is not sinning. Okay? We want to be careful. We want to be careful. There are certain things that are definitely sin. God says you shall not be drunk. So if you're drunk, you're sinning. He says you shall not gospel, gossip. If you're gossiping, you're sinning. If you're going around murdering people, you're definitely sinning. That, that's even recognized by the world. <laughs> okay? If you're lying, you're, you're sinning. If you're committing adultery, you're sinning. If you're committing fornication, you're sinning. If you're committing homosexual acts, you're sinning. If you're doing uh, incest, you're sinning. God has very clear laws on those things. But there's a lot of things that people say, well, you can't do. And the classic example is the older church that says, you can't, you know, uh, women, you don't wear makeup, you can't wear pants, you can't go to the movies, you can't play cards because you might be able to gamble with them, so you can't play cards, don't go to the movies, don't do this, don't do that. And none of those things were really in the scriptures that says don't do. And yet that was the long list that they would give you. And each church still to this day oftentimes has a list of what they consider right and wrong. Not all, but many. And it doesn't take you long to be in that church to realize that you've crossed some taboo that wasn't in the scriptures. You know, you tell them about the movie, you say, you went to a movie? <laughs> you went to an R movie? Uh, you went to a PG-13 movie? How dare you do something like that? You should only go to a G movie or, or you are sinning. You know, God never said that in the scriptures. <laughs> so, How to what? Soldiers. Because it's not murder, it's defense of your country. Because thou shalt not kill is literally thou shalt not murder. An execution of a criminal done by the government is not murder, it is a execution for violating the laws of the land. If you're a soldier, you're executing, you're executing people that your country has determined that are yeah. Right. You've got to understand that God is all for capital punishment. He says it all in place. There's, you, you do certain, certain crimes, there is a capital crime because you've hurt somebody at the soul level, or worse, in the, in the case of murder. In battle, on a just war, and then God is saying you're, you're defending your country. Now, the hard part is, are all wars just? Not necessarily. At that point, you have to make some decisions on whether you can participate or not and be on solid ground. Because we've had a lot of wars where people have gone, eh, I don't know. Well, we are to obey our government unless it is in complete opposition to God. And once it's in opposition to God, we can disobey our government and should disobey our government and as I've always said, be ready for the punishment that comes for disobeying God, uh, the government. Huh? Well, King David paid greatly for his sins, but not for battle. But how did... He got mercy on that one. King got mercy. Well, in Cain's idea, there were so few people that they needed Cain to produce some people, probably. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of people when Cain kills his brother. 
probably, probably just a couple hundred people when Cain kill, kills Abel. Uh, when David killed Uriah, he repented and God gave him mercy. And we've talked about this. Sometimes God gives us mercy instead of what we deserve. Don't presume on getting mercy. Uh, but sometimes he will give us mercy rather than paying back what we do. We 90% of the time will reap what we sow. Now David did reap a lot of penalty for killing Uriah. There was a lot of penalty for that. His, he was told that the sword will not leave your family. What you did in secret will be done openly in, on the housetop. Uh, and he had rebellions against him and he had to leave his kingdom on two occasions. And uh, Absalom uh, took David's uh, concubines and slept with them on the roof of the palace in front of, in, you know, well, as far as the roof is, in front of all of Israel. Uh, so everything that God said would happen happened to him, and it was all because of the sins that he did. Well, he'd made a promise to him. He'd made a promise that your seed will sit on the, on the throne. Well, he had a contrite heart he, eventually. It took him about 12 to 13 months to, to, to get convicted, but he did have a contrite heart. He did love God, and God gave him a great, great blessing. That does not mean that everybody can go out and murder somebody and get away with it. Yeah. Uh, but David had this, you know, uh, Cain had that mercy shown to him. Why? Why does God do whatever he does half the time? We don't know. He has a reason for it. He knows what he's trying to accomplish. He knows the beginning from the end and knows why it's good to do what he did. Part of the reason David didn't die when he did is because Solomon was not born yet and, and needed to be born so that he, and trained so that he could be king. Because otherwise, there wouldn't have been the right line sitting on the throne to bring the Messiah. Which is probably why David got the mercy instead of the correction and punishment that he deserved. Because uh, he did two capital offenses. Okay? We only think about Uriah, but adultery was a capital offense. So in that event, he had two sins that both deserved death. Okay? And God gave him great mercy. I mean, God gave him great mercy by not bringing him to death. And part of it is, again, so that Solomon would be born and Solomon would lead to the other kings that led to Jesus' birth. All right? God knows the beginning from the end, and he knows what's needed to make things happen. And if he's going to give mercy to make sure that that happens, he'll give mercy. Uh, the thing about it is he knows everything. Nothing is a surprise to God. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing that happens in your life surprises him. None of his responses are going to surprise him because of his justice and his mercy and his grace. But here he's saying these Pharisees and scribes tell you one thing. They tell you about all the laws they're keeping, but they're not really keeping the laws. They're, they're just trying to make themselves look good. Well, yeah, well, that's it. You know, the, the people, the, all the sinners that were in his family tree, the, yeah, they the, never, uh, that out. the very reputation that he grew up having, okay, 
The, you see this in, from the scribes and the Pharisees. Oftentimes when they come before him, there's one time when they go, well, we know who our father is. You don't know who your father is. What were they saying? Your mother was an adulteress and you were, you were a bastard child. You don't even know who your father is. You know, and Jesus goes, well, I know who my father is. You just don't know who he is. Uh, but he had a cloud hanging over his life all the way through his growing up years because he was born to a mother who wasn't married officially for, for sexual advantage. And so he grew up with that. Mary would have suffered most of her life, if not all of her life, with the dark cloud hanging over her that you had sex outside of marriage. And, and when we've talked about this, that Joseph probably suffered with it too because he did not immediately divorce her and, and have her put away. So tacitly, he was basically to the people saying, this is my child and we were doing things we weren't supposed to do before married because they were looking at him saying, well, if it wasn't your child, you wouldn't want her. I've heard that going now. The kids that parents are married, that uh, you know, I know who my father is. And, you know, that goes on every day. And it's very rare nowadays, though. So I mean, it's, it's not so much. So. Yeah, because most of them don't know, so it's not that big a deal in them, to them anymore. It's just not cared about anymore. It's so nor it's so normal. Yeah. Uh, so the the. the and it's kind of, if we look at the disciples' attitude to this, well, he's saying this because we forgot bread. Yeah. I look at this and I'm going, how did they put those two together? Because everybody in the Old Testament knows that leaven represented sin. <laughs> and he's saying, watch out for their sin. And they're, and they're going, you know, how much, how much were they berating themselves that they left their bread? You know, maybe they were already upset that they left the bread. You know, we left in such a hurry, we forgot to grab the seven baskets, you know, and so automatically, and have you ever been there where you're so worried about something that it seems like everything somebody says to you is about what you're worried about? They probably haven't got a clue what you're worried about, but you're, you're applying everything they say to whatever it is you're worried about. You know, well, you know, if they just knew what I did last night, well, what did they say? <laughs> how did you know? You know? You didn't say it directly, but how did you know? You know? The guilty conscience can make us apply everything said to us and apply it to some place that has no business being applied to. And it's kind of an interesting thing as a, as a pastor. I can tell you how many times people have come up to me and they go, you know, you said such and such in the, in the message. And I'm going, I did? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember talking about that topic. <laughs> and sometimes I'll even go back and, you know, and listen to the tape, you know, tape and go, oh, I never said that. The Holy Spirit was getting hold of the guilty conscience and sharing something with them. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. If you've got a guilty conscience or you're, you're not repenting of something, how everything seems to be geared toward whatever it is that you're trying to hide. Everything. You know, how, how, isn't it a beautiful day? How'd you know that I was having trouble last night? You know, you know had nothing to do with you, but, you know, you immediately attach it to where you're, where you're guilty on. You know, it was a beautiful day. Didn't you have fun yesterday? You, you know what I was doing yesterday? How did you know? Yeah. But we do this in the disciples. Jesus is telling them, beware of the leaven, which they already know means sin. And they immediately jump to, we forgot the bread. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go hungry. We forgot the bread. That bread's supposed to feed us for the next week. Yeah. Uh, and Jesus goes, oh, you of little faith, why are you reasoning this way? Why are you sitting there with such a guilty conscience, basically? The Holy Spirit comes in 
and convicts us. And all, all we're supposed to do is admit that, we're, admit that we've committed the sin and say, God, I'm not going to do it again and turn back to him. And yet many times we wallow in the, in the conviction. We wallow in the sin. He says, don't you understand? I fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and I fed 4,000 with seven loaves of bread. Have you forgotten so quickly? The bread is not, I'm not worried about the seven loaves of bread you left behind. You know, he could have said, well, you were really foolish. You should have remembered it. But he goes, I don't even care. Because if you've got one loaf, I can feed you guys. <laughs> you know, How is it that you do not understand that I spoke not of you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It says, then they understood that he was talking about not the bread, but their doctrine. And we've talked about this. The, the scribes and the Pharisees tried to make it look like they were always doing good things. You know, let's, let's make everybody think we're doing good when we're not. Let's make them think that we're obeying the law even though we're trying to find all the loopholes in it. Yeah, and they did lots of different things. You know, they'd stand on the street corners and pray out loud saying, look at me, look how much I pray. Might have been the only time they prayed in that week was the time they were standing on the street corner letting everybody look at them. Uh, they would take their their tithes and offering and they would what they would what they said sound the horn they had a great big horn in the box and and they would learn to throw their money in just right to make lots of noise to say look at me you know as they change their dollar their their shekels into pennies and start throwing a bunch of pennies in instead of shekels look at me look how much i'm giving look how great i am uh, Look at me, I don't do more than the Sabbath day walk from home as they do all these different things to make it look like they're being obedient but not. Look at me, I don't give my parents their, these gifts because I have dedicated everything to God. When I die, everything goes to God. So I can't give it to my kids or my, or my parents because I'm so spiritual that I, that, I won't, that, I, that I won't use it that way. And just before they, especially if they live to old age, they'll spend every penny they have rather than give it to their kids because it's given to God. They're not going to let it go to the temple. All these things where they said, this is what I am, look at me, but they weren't who they were. Hypocrites. And you know, people look at the Christians all the time and say, there's just a bunch of hypocrites in church. And unfortunately, they're probably true. There are lots of hypocrites in church because none of us do all the things that we say we do. None of us obey God the way we should. So in essence, we're all hypocrites no matter what. But you know, that can't be an excuse for them. You can't look at others and decide that you're not going to follow God. Because when you stand before God, and God's going to say, well, I know some of them were, but what about you? What would you have been? You know, number one, they probably would have been a hypocrite too. <laughs> say one thing, do another. As we grow, we get better at doing what we say and being what we say we are. But we'll never be totally free of it. Well, we all have a flesh. We all have a sin nature. We all have the lust of the flesh, the pride of the life, and the lust of the eyes. You know, we. We see things and want it. We, you know, we feel that we want something and we do it and, the, and we will protect ourselves at all cost. Easy to sin. Don't need any help to sin. Because we have plenty of in our own flesh, which is why it's got to be crucified. When it's crucified, when we're following God, when our attention's on God, when we're hiding in him, have you ever noticed how sin doesn't seem to be as big a deal? Because you're focused on God. And he's crucifying your flesh during that period of time. And you're letting him put it under the, under the, under the cross. The problem is so often we get away from him and we go, oh, this hurts. I don't, want it. I don't want this to be crucified. 
And we jump off the altar, we can't, you know, pull ourselves off the cross and, and go sin. And it's sad. We, especially when we're a young Christian, immature Christian, we do this a lot. The more mature we are in Christ, the less we do it. Probably never get to where we don't do it at all. If we do, we'll be Elijah or Enoch and be in heaven. We'll just be taking God to say, okay, you've you made it. Come on up. You can't get any, you can't get any more out of your, sin out of your life, so come on up. Wouldn't mind being there. <laughs> don't expect it to happen any day soon. I expect God will rapture the church or, or I'll die long before I get to, get to be an Enoch or, or Jer, uh, J, uh, Elijah and get to go home without dying. I think I'll die first or, or have the rapture. But he says, beware. Beware the false teachers who say one thing and do another. Beware of doing it yourself. You know, how easy it is to try to make people think that we're something. Come to church every Sunday morning and plaster on your Sunday morning smile. How are you doing? Oh, everything's going fine. You know, had a really terrible week. I, I did a lot of sinning. I've been under conviction. Uh, everything's going wrong in my life, but I'm going to tell everybody I'm doing good. And the world knows it. People know it that are looking at you. But we have to be careful. Now, does that mean we come in and tell everybody everything that's going wrong in our life? No, they probably don't want to be around you. How many people have you been around that you go, hey, how are you doing? And they tell you everything that's going wrong with them. They actually tell you everything. And they don't leave out a single detail. Uh, uh, that's a little bit more than I really wanted to know. You just could have told me you were having a bad week. And I would have been, going good, I'll pray for you. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Well, that's not being a family either, so. But, uh, we asked. We, we asked. Uh, but you know, there is that point where you can get too much and too detailed about, and that also usually means that you're focused only on your problems and not on what God's doing for you because, well, not just that, but when somebody gives you that nothing is going right in their life, then I already know that they have not been in God's word, they have not been praying, and they have not been focusing on God. Either that or God's really doing a job on them, which is very rare. Not because nothing's going wrong in their life, but because... They're not seeing anything good. They're not seeing it in a, any kind of positive light. They're not seeing any good... Uh, I know that there are bad things that go on in my life, but I don't focus on the bad. And oftentimes I'll tell people, I'm just having a really good life. I told, I told my stepmom one time, I'm going, you know, nothing bad has ever happened to me. Really, nothing really bad has ever happened to me. She laughed. I'm going, to your life? She goes, you really, don't, you really don't think of it that way, do you? And I'm going, well, I guess some bad things have happened, but, you know. <laughs> well, I'm not even that negative on it. It's just I try very hard to focus on the good that God is doing and because I truly believe that all things work together for good, whatever bad has happened to me is for good, and God will use it for good, so I really do not generally focus on the bad things that are happening. You know, a little thing like my car being broken down. I really don't think about it because God will, apply, God will provide the money. He'll provide the opportunity to get it fixed when the time comes, and it'll be whatever God uses, uses it to teach or do or to bring about. Uh, what that would be? I don't know. <laughs> but when I get through it, I'll see, how, I'll see how he blessed on it. I'll see how he provided for it. I'll see what he did. And I'm going, okay, thank you, God. You did it. There's times when we don't, we don't feel that, uh, 
We But again, that comes from not focusing on him and not really accepting that all things work together for good and that he's in control. We have our eyes off God. Right. And when we're focused on the waves, we're focused on the problems, the littlest problem can make us feel totally miserable. Have you ever looked at your life and when your eyes aren't on God and you get a little perspective away from something, you're going, why was I so worried about, you know, this thing took my entire life away from me for a period of time and it was nothing. And then you look back on some really big problem when your eyes are focused on God and you're going, that didn't even seem like a problem. This has been true of my life most of my life. A couple of times I've tripped over really dumb things, especially when I was younger. Now I usually will focus on God and say, God, I don't understand why you're doing it. And I, that's my statement with him. God, I really don't understand how this is going to be good. I don't know what you're trying to teach me, but you've promised it's for good and you've allowed it to come my way. And I'm going to stay focused on you. Life is so easy when you stay focused on God. Doesn't mean I never get tripped up. I've had that happen. Uh, and I told you all five years ago, we went to an event and our car broke down in Tucson, <laughs> long ways from here. And everybody, everybody at the conference is going, how are you going to get home? How are you going to get, how are you going to get your car fixed? How are you going to, I go, I don't know. I got, God's got three days to figure that out. I'm just going to concentrate on this. You know, it was one of those times when I did a really good focus on, on, on the last day, God says, why don't you call this person? You know, this name just popped into my head. He has a flatbed trailer and a, and a truck, and I'm, call him. Well, I could have spent the entire weekend trying to figure out how I was going to fix my car and get it home and, you know, get on a bus. You know, I'm, I'm coming on, I'm going, okay, God, if I have to ride a bus, you're going to give me a ticket to get a bus home, and I'll figure out what to do with the car from there. But, but you see, where is your focus? Now, I say that I'm never always that good. There's times when I don't focus on God and fall and trip and I look back over it and say, wow, a really dumb thing to trip over it because it really wasn't that big a deal. But if our eyes are focused on God and we recognize God, you've promised it's for good. God, you are in charge. God, you, you're not allowing anything that's going to hurt me that you, that you don't want me to learn from. And we focus on him. We're Peter walking on the water until we decide to focus on the problem and then we sink. Huh? Our carnality, our lack of focus on God. Uh, when I'm focused on God, everything's being crucified. I'm focused on God. When I'm not focused on God, that's when I'm going to start getting miserable. Everything's going to be bad, and every little thing that happens to me is terrible. And how, God, how can, this is when I go, God, how can you let something like this happen to me? Okay. Now, I've learned well enough that if I hear those words coming out of my mouth, I'm going, how stupid am I? Because God says nothing that all things work together for good. But why? Because I absolutely believe that verse. Okay? Usually it's the first thing I think of when something, quote-unquote, bad happens in my life. God, you're going to make it good. I don't know how, don't know why, don't know how you're going to do it, don't know why you're doing it, but you're going to make something good out of it. And that keeps me focused on him most of the time. And all of our tests really are, do we believe it? Now, some of the tests I've gone through, I believe in that verse, have been pretty tough. You know, God hits me with some pretty heavy things and saying, okay, are you going to believe me now? <laughs> so far, I haven't had to go through a Job experience and lose everything. 
That will be the tough one, won't it? You know, God says, okay, you're going to lose everything you own. Uh, okay, God, I don't know why you're doing this, but <laughs> hopefully that'll be my attitude. And it'll probably be my statement, God, I really don't understand what you're trying to do and how this is going to be good, but I want to hold on to it. Now, will I be able to do that when the time comes? I don't know. <laughs> I would hope that I will. But I don't know that I will until I face that problem because it'll be big enough, hard enough to really shake the foundations because that's what I teach us, isn't it? The level of our test is equal to how well we believe something. Okay? Most of you will not get many of the tests that come my way because you're not 46 years into walk with God trusting him in certain areas. By the same token, I may not have some of the tests you have because you've spent years being tested in some areas that God hasn't even begun to test me in. And if I had your test, I would go, oh my goodness, this is terrible. And if you had some of the tests I've had, you'd go, crush. Why? Because God has moved me along in many areas. And many of you have been walking with God long enough. There's some areas in your life that God has tested and moved, and you're, you're at a high school level test. And in that particular area, I may be in a kindergarten level test. We never know. How do we apply God's word? Sometimes we get to skip kindergarten because we've learned enough that we can apply it. And you know, say, okay, well, I've learned these things, so I now think I can tr apply them to other areas that God hasn't tested, and he already knows that. And says, okay, I'm not giving you a kindergarten test because you don't need a kindergarten test. I'm going to give you a junior high test because you're in college on these things, and you should be able to apply what you know here to this. But God is going to test us. He's going to try us. And the more we focus on him, the better off we're going to be. The less we focus on him, we're going to sink. Now, and a lot of people will, will make fun of Peter having taken his eyes off Jesus and sunk. But you know, very, he was the only one of the 12 that had enough courage to stand out in faith and walk on the water. Okay. So, and he actually walked on the water for many steps until he took his focus off Christ. The other 11 didn't even have enough faith to get out of the boat. Yeah, they're probably laughing at him when he steps out. Oh, let's watch this fool sink. Whoa. Yeah. One of the things about Peter was that he was willing to take a lot of chances. Yeah. He was willing to take a lot of chances. Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. I'm ready to fight this, this whole squad of soldiers that have come to arrest you. Yeah. I mean, I'm a fisherman. I don't even know how to use this, this sword, but I'm ready to fight these soldiers. And Jesus says, no, back down. He says, not... You're not listening to the right spirit again, Peter. And then just a little while later, eyes off Jesus, maybe even hurting from the rebuke that he got when he wanted to defend him, denying him in front of, in front of the, the servant girls, little girls by the, by the word used, and he's denying Jesus and has to be restored. Now, he went through three days and three nights where he was totally convinced that there was no chance that he'd ever be able to follow Jesus again. So bad that he says, I'm going fishing. I give up following the Messiah. I'm going back to fishing. I know how to fish. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to Egypt. I'm going back to the world. Forget this Jesus guy. He died and, his, you know, and I denied him. There's, even, if, even if he does come back, there's no hope for me because I denied him. And Jesus had to go back and restore him. Okay. How often do we do that? God, I have just messed up so bad <laughs> that there is no way you can use me again. And Jesus saying, yes, I can. Just repent. Turn back to me. 
be the prodigal son in return, and I will restore you. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to help us as we go about. Help us to walk with you the way we should and, and stand for you in all that we do. And just be your servants in your son's name. Amen.